Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to call and equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make Him known. For more information, you can visit our website at cityofrefuge.org. Our text from the day uh, goes from James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11. It reads, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass." Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, there's times when you read the scriptures and you want to say amen, and there's other times you just want to say ouch. And I think James often feels that way. So we're, uh, we're starting a new series today where we're going to be going through um, James's letter. And uh, the, the title for the series is Devoted to Fellowship. Now, last fall, we talked a little bit about this theme that we're on of proclaiming the gospel through a spirit-filled life of wholeness and love and its connection to what we see in the Acts 2 church. Where in the Acts 2 church, there were these things that they were devoted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship. And so in addition to sort of looking at what does it look like for us to be verbally proclaiming the gospel, we also have looked like what is it, what is it, how do we go about as a community reflecting these things that we're supposed to be devoted to? So we've talked about prayer, and now we are also going to be talking about what does it mean to have fellowship with one another? Now, why James? Because if you read James's letter, you're actually not going to see the word fellowship. I'm not even sure if it mentions church that much in the midst of the letter of James. But what you have in James is you have these very practical ways that we are supposed to be living out our faith. And so I think it, it shows what does it mean for us to have fellowship. You remember when we talked about fellowship, that fellowship is not just about having relationship with one another, right? It's not just about getting together for a meal. As much as we have fellowship lunches, and that's a part of it, is this relationship that we have with each other. But fellowship is also something much deeper than that. It is this interdependence that we have and these patterns of life that we have together, both individually and corporately, that reflect God's character. And that our gospel proclamation is tied not just to what we say with our mouths, but also how our lives are proclaiming the gospel through love and truth. And that happens individually, but it also happens as a church. And so I think the letter of James gives us some important aspects of what does it look like to be a community that is living into true Christian fellowship. 
And that's why I want to spend some time uh, in this letter. Now, as I said earlier, James is rough. Like, it is a tough book. Not so much to understand, but James is very, very direct. You know, an, an image that I have whenever I read James is uh, the gold being refined in fire. So some of you may know this process, right? Of how is gold refined? They, they melt it down and they turn up the heat really hot. And then the impurities, what's called the dross, rises to the surface. And they kind of scrape it off or they pour it out in such a way that what's left is the pure refined gold. And I think James kind of does that a little bit. He, tur- he turns the heat up on the Christian a little bit, and, and, and for the purpose not of us like feeling bad about ourselves, but for the purpose of there being this purity that comes out of it. So we are going to start uh, in James, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and we're going to see what are the things that he's kind of putting the heat on where the dross is going to come to the surface. And there's three things in particular I want to look at today with regards to James and what he says about community life together. And they're, one, that we are supposed to remain steadfast under trial. Two, is that we are to seek wisdom through prayer. And a third is that we are to have a right relationship with wealth. And these are three things that are intrinsic to what it looks like for us to have a true Christian fellowship with one another. Now, he starts out in verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this James is James, the brother of Jesus. We see him in Acts 15 being kind of part of the leadership of the early church. Paul also mentions that he was an important leader um, of the Christian community after Jesus' ascension. But here we don't see him claiming any of those titles. He just introduces himself as a servant, a servant of God and a servant of Jesus. And he writes, he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, he's pulling a lot of Old Testament language here, right? The 12 tribes, referring to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And we're going to see that in several places in the letter. He's going to sort of just assume his audience knows some things about Old Testament stories and Old Testament law. But he calls them the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And I think that's kind of in two senses. One, he's referring back to what had happened during the Babylonian captivity, when a lot of Israelites got taken into Babylon and to other places, and they were dispersed. They were dispersed among the nations. No longer were they all in Israel. Now they were in Babylon, and they ended up in Turkey and even in Greece and Rome by this time. Jews were all over the place. And many of them were coming to know Christ. And so he's writing to these that are physically in the dispersion, But also there's a sense where they are spiritually in the dispersion. And the entire church is, right? We have been spread throughout the world. And we are in this time right now where we are in the midst of nations that don't always or typically don't love God. And so we are dispersed. And so he's writing to predominantly Jewish Christians that are finding themselves physically and spiritually dispersed. And incidentally, also facing persecution, as we're going to see here in a little bit. He's going to talk a lot about how do you go about standing firm under that? So he, he starts out in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So here he introduces what I'm putting as sort of the first aspect of what it means to have Christian fellowship is that we remain together and steadfast under trial. But he even goes beyond that. James has the audacity to say that when we meet trials of various kinds, and he is very broad in that, we're supposed to count it a joy. Now, when I read that, I don't know about you, but there's part of me that says, really? Or to quote my 13-year-old, bruh? <laughs> right, like, this is a, bruh, do you understand like what it is like to live in this world? And James does. He does understand, and yet he says, whatever trial we're under, we are supposed to count it a joy. Why? He says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? He says we are to count it a joy because we recognize that it is accomplishing something in our lives. That God is using this in order to produce steadfast in us, steadfastness in us and that that steadfastness will eventually lead to our perfection and our completion that we would be lacking in nothing. I'm returned to that, that gold imagery. Right? What he's saying here is that we can count it as a joy when we face trials because we know that God is going to use this as a way to help purify us, to make us more complete, to make us more into what he's trying to turn us into. Now, that assumes something, right? That assumes that we care about that. And I think that that's something else here that is important about what it means to count it a joy is that that means we have to want spiritual maturity, right? If we don't want spiritual maturity, then nothing about this is going to sound very appealing, but we are, as God's people, supposed to long for the completeness and the perfection and that purity that he's talking about here. And if we want that, if we desire that, then when we face trials and it is accomplishing that end, we can count it as a joy. Now, that doesn't mean that there still isn't aspects of grief and hard things we're going through trials. Of course there is, but there is a part of it that we can count as a joy because we recognize it is pursuing something that we long for and that we know that God desires in our lives. I was thinking back um, to Pastor Rufus, who used to pastor here at City of Refuge. He used to say something that has stuck with me. And he was talking about that no matter what you are facing, that if it wasn't fatal, God means for it to be fruitful. That, that has stuck with me through the years, and I think that's a reflection of what James is saying here, is that if whatever we're going through, if it isn't fatal, God means for it to be fruitful, for it to produce something in us. And so James tells us, count it a joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So this is the first thing, what it looks like for us to be a, 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 a fellowship of Jesus' followers is that we long for spiritual maturity, and because of that, we can count it joy when we face trials, both individually and corporately. It means we as a church, when hard times come, and they will, that we can look to it to be something that is going to be producing something good in the midst of our church, even in the midst of difficulty. That's the first thing. Second thing, he goes on. Now, you're going to notice something just stylistically I want to insert here. James is going to jump around a lot. 
He's not going to stick on one subject. This has kind of been compared to the book of Proverbs in this way. One, because James is going to, as we're going to see, talk about wisdom a lot. But he also, sort of like the Proverbs, kind of jumps from thing to thing. So we're going to see that here. He's going to move on to this idea of wisdom. In verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this is the, the second thing that he is going to call a fellowship of believers to, that we seek wisdom from God through prayer. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, what is this wisdom he's talking about? And I think this is a reflection of what we see in the Old, the Old Testament around what is wisdom, right? It is, it's going beyond the information and the knowledge to how that is lived out. How do you go about putting into practice the things that God says? Because there are some things that are very easy to say, here is a law that I can follow and do that, right? Thou shalt not steal. I am hopeful that most of you did not have trouble following that this week, right? And, and it probably wasn't hard to figure out how not to do that, right? You're at Target. You pay for what you take out of the store, and that's how you follow thou shalt not steal, right? You're at work, and you don't defraud your employer, Thou shalt not steal, right? There is a, a law that you can follow that's fairly easy to understand what to do. Thou shalt not kill, right? When you get angry with your friend, violence is not the answer. But there's other things in life that are not so clear-cut where you can't go chapter and verse and figure out, how do I do this? So, for instance, I want to proclaim the gospel to my coworkers, but my employer has a pretty strong stance against any type of sharing of faith within the workplace, how would I go about doing that? I'm trying to figure out, this person I'm dating, whether I should marry them or not, or whether I should get married at all. Now, Scripture speaks to all of these things, but they are not something where you can go chapter and verse. When I was deciding to marry Ellen, there was nowhere in the Bible that said, thou shalt marry Ellen, right? That took wisdom. And it was wise. <laughs> but that's what he's saying is that there are these things in life for which we are going to need wisdom to know how to live them out. And so he says, if any of you lacks that, if you recognize there's something I do not know what to do, and you need wisdom, he says, let him ask God. His response is, that, yes, we are to seek God in his word. We are supposed to, I think he's sort of presupposing that, but that there is also then this call to be asking God for the wisdom that we need. And he says that God is going to give generously to all without reproach. I find that interesting, that last reproach. So it's not like we're going to go to God asking for wisdom, and he's going to be like, really? Can't figure this out? No, like he recognizes, hey, you need this wisdom. He recognizes he is the source of wisdom. And so when we go to him for wisdom, it says he will give generously of it and that he is not going to reproach us for that. And I think there's just a, 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 a firm call here for us individually and corporately, like when we hit situations where we don't know what to do, to ask the Lord for the wisdom that we need to do it. 
But he says, he goes on and he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is something else that, that James is going to talk a lot about is this nature of true faith. What is faith that is, that is real? And he says here that we should ask in faith with no doubting. And here I think he's talking specifically about prayer. And he, he even uses this image of us being double-minded if we are doubting. It's like, why would you go to God and ask for something at the same time that you're doubting that he can do it? Right? There's a double-mindedness to that that, that says we, sh- we shouldn't do that. If you're going to God for wisdom, you should believe that he can do it and believe that firmly. Later on, he's going to use the same double-mindedness to talk about really our, our lives and our relationship to sin. That like, why would you claim to have faith and still continue to walk in sin patterns? Like there is a double-mindedness. And he wants us, James is calling us to have a single-mindedness in prayer and a single-mindedness in our walk with God. And that means not doubting. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this doubt thing for a second. Because I think it is the case that for all of us, we, just as a part of being in this world, have seasons of doubt. We have seasons where we ask questions. We have seasons where we seek God and are are confused about things. I think that is normal part of the Christian experience. But nonetheless, one of the things that I have seen is within the church, not necessarily specifically City of Refuge, but in general, almost a romanticization of doubt, where I think in an effort to want to be communities that are open to people who have questions, who, who are seeking the Lord maybe for the first time, that there's a big emphasis on, you know, it's okay to doubt. Yeah, to an extent it is, but what James is saying here is doubt is not what we're after, right? We are after firm faith. And so on the one hand, I, th- I hope that we as a church are a place where people can have seasons of doubt and ask questions and that be something that we respond to in a healthy way. But I also want to kind of just emphasize what James says here is that like we are supposed to be a community of faith. We are supposed to be a community that trusts God because we have so much evidence and foundation on which to do so. So we should not romanticize doubt. I hope that we are instead romanticizing and in love with faith. So James says that when we ask for wisdom, we are to do it with faith, trusting God that he will give it both generously and without reproach. So that is the second thing. We remain steadfast under trial and we seek wisdom from God through prayer. All right, time for the third one. Now this one is another thing. All of these are are themes that James is going to further develop as he goes through this letter. Um, so today is a little bit of a foundation of laying kind of how, what, he, what he's saying about these things um, so that as we go through them, it makes sense. But in verse 9, it says, uh, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So one of the things that it seems like the early church was dealing with was how do we deal with both rich and poor within the community? How do we go about having fellowship and unity with one another in the midst of that? 
And I think that's an important thing today that churches continue to need to have to address and, and know how to handle well. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of big picture where I think James is coming from with regards to this topic, and then we're going to go specifically into what he says here in these verses. So James is very much building off of the foundations of Old Testament teaching as well as Jesus' teaching on wealth and poverty. And I, I, I put these three statements together that I think are summaries of big picture of these teaching. Now, this is not an exhaustive study of what is a very big topic. The Bible has a lot to say about money. Jesus had a lot to say about money. So this isn't exhaustive, but I think if you're looking for what are some of the core foundational pieces that are going to inform the way James talks about wealth and poverty, I think this is helpful. The first is this, that God has a particular heart and care for the poor and the marginalized. That is something you see particularly in the Old Testament prophets. Over and over again, God expresses his heart and care for the poor and for those who cannot care for themselves, the marginalized. And I think you see that too in the way that Jesus lives his life, right? Who does he go to primarily? It is not the rich and the powerful. He's primarily going to the tax collectors and the sinners and the poor. Second thing God's people are supposed to imitate his heart through tangible and generous care for the poor and the marginalized. Again, you see this in the Old Testament prophets over and over again. God calls his people to generosity and to care for the poor. And he actually gets on them when they aren't doing that, when they're being exploitive to the poor and when they're taking advantage and not paying uh, workers their wages and things like that. That is something that comes under a great deal of condemnation in the Old Testament. But there's also this call to be generous and to care for them. And again, you see that in Jesus' life and in his teaching, right, where he talks about if you give anyone a glass of water or food in my name, you are doing it to me. He encourages us to visit with those who are sick, to visit with those who are in prison. Right? There is this overall, we are supposed to be reflecting God's heart in the ways that we care for the poor and the marginalized. The third thing is that wealth carries with it spiritual dangers, including pride, exploitation, and a lack of dependence on God. This is something that over and over again comes up in both Old Testament and Jesus' teaching, right? Money has claws to it. It is going to make a play for your heart. And the way that primarily manifests is in pride, primarily in not wanting to be dependent on God or kind of using your power to take advantage of others in exploitive ways or just letting it make you puffed up. This is something that, that, that Jesus taught about. Think of stories like the, the rich young ruler where he talks about that. In several of the epistles, they talk about some of the spiritual dangers that wealth can pose. So, so these things are going to inform a lot of what James has to say about wealth and poverty. That being said, if you don't mind going to the next slide, what we're not going to see is, is James come out and say, well, all wealthy people are unrighteous and all poor people are righteous. Um, and, and the reason is, is because the Bible does not say that. It is not that, it is more nuanced than that. And if you look in the scriptures, I'd say there's sort of four big categories. You have the, the righteous wealthy and the righteous poor, and you have the unrighteous wealthy and the unrighteous poor. And you can kind of see up on the, the, what the, some of the characteristics are 
of those different groups. And I'm, I think in particular, you see a lot of this in Proverbs itself, where you see some of these behaviors of both the rich and the poor. But I mean, two that I kind of want to focus on are the kind of the righteous wealthy are generous, humble, and dependent on God. And that's where we're going to see a lot of what James calls the wealthy to in uh, his letter here. Um, but then also the, the unrighteous wealthy are exploitive, proud, and not dependent on God. And, and I will say that one of the things you see over and over in the scriptures is that to be wealthy and proud is a really spiritually dangerous place to be. There is a lot of examples in the scriptures where you see that not go well. So I, I just wanted to kind of give this as a little bit of a foundation uh, to, to understand when James talks about wealth, I think these are some of the broad categories that he's coming from. Uh, because we're going to see him come to the subject a couple times as we go through the Gospel of James. For the, the, script, the scripture today, he says this. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." So you'll notice up there under the righteous wealthy, one of the primary things, one of the primary attributes is humility. And that seems to be what he's saying here is that there is a, actually a humility that comes from wealth. And it has to do with just the temporariness of our time here. He, call, he compares the wealthy to those that are like flowers of the field that fade away. And it's almost this idea that for those who are wealthy, you stand to lose more when you die, right? And there's almost a little bit of an embarrassment of this idea of, well, I've stacked up all these things here on earth, and then I'm just going to lose them in this very short time that I have here when the important things are the eternal things. And, that's, and so there's a humiliation there that he says that the rich are to boast in, which is a little bit of an odd paradox. But there's the sense where Riches are not supposed to be a source of pride. Instead, they should be a source of humility. And so he's calling the, the, the wealthy in the church to have an attitude of humility and dependence upon God, recognizing the shortness of this life and recognizing the fact that we don't get to take it with us. And I think that over and over again is one of the things you see in the scriptures is that we are to have hearts that recognize the fact that our time on earth is brief. And that should inform what it is that we seek after. That should inform what we do with our material wealth. And that should inform what it is that causes us to have pride or humility. And in this case, he's saying... For those who are wealthy, you should be humble because you know it's passing away. So, uh, if you don't mind going back to those three things again. These are sort of the, the three big things that we're going to see. There's going to be more than these, but three things that are going to come up a couple times in James. One is that we remain steadfast under trial. Two is that we seek wisdom from God through prayer. And three is that we seek a right relationship with wealth. So I guess my, my question for this morning is looking at these three things, where is it that we feel like we need to be refined? 
Is there anywhere this morning that as James has talked about these things where maybe you have sort of felt the heat a little bit and maybe felt that dross rising to the surface, right? Is there places where we are not counting it joy when we have faced a trial? And maybe that's because we don't value the spiritual maturity that's coming from that. Are there places where we are maybe unstable in our faith or we're not seeking God in wisdom? Places in our lives where we're just winging it, but we're not actually going to God with trusting that he has the wisdom we need in order to help us. Or maybe it is the case that we recognize, you know what? The wealth in my life is starting to make a play for our heart. And I would say, if you're looking and comparing us globally, I mean, most of us in this room would be in the category of the wealthy. And so is it making a play for our hearts? Have we started to fall into dependence on ourselves? Have we started to fall into a level of pride because of our material belongings? And maybe God is calling us today to to recognize, to boast in our humiliation and to, to begin to walk in a new level of humbleness about our wealth. All right. Well, again, I don't know if this is an amen or if this is an ouch. But it's probably both. And for both of those, let's go to the Lord for prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for just the ways that James confronts us. Lord, I, um, I guess for many of us, we need more faith to be able to ask for wisdom. We need your spirit to be able to count joy when we face trials. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for spiritual maturity such that when we face things that help us to grow in that, Lord, we can find delight, even as we also work through the difficulty and the sorrow. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, if for us we have begun to be tempted by the, just the material things of this world, they've begun to make a play for our hearts, Father. I pray that um, you would show that to us, that we may walk in humility and repentance. Help us, Lord, to reflect that repentance in even greater uh, generosity towards those around us who are in need. Lord, we love you and give you the praise and the glory in your name. Amen.